gym on the roof and go around church. Do the sexual sins in the New Testament need to be understood in the original Hellenistic context? Well, last week I answered a question uh, by telling you... It's a bit of a nerdy question, so congratulations to whoever asked that. Uh, uh, (laughs) Last week I answered a question. uh, It was all about uh, what the New Testament says about homosexual behaviour, basically saying that homosexual behaviour is a sin. And this question now asks whether or not sins like that need to be understood in their original Hellenistic, which is just a nerdy way to say Greek or ancient Greek, context. Well, we always need to first understand what the Bible said to the original readers, and then we can understand what it says to us today. That's a general principle in how we interpret the Bible. Uh, some traditions and activities in the first century mean something different than that, what they do today. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, it says, A man dishonours his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonours her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. How many women have got their heads covered tonight? Uh, what, you can see what we've got here is... A a culture there where shaved heads and uncovered or covered heads could cause offence in a way that clearly that's not the case today. So what we need to do is work out what was the offensive thing back then. And then when we've worked that out, we can apply the same equivalent message to our culture. So we work out what it meant in the first century and then we can discern how to apply it in the 21st century. So, with that principle in mind, the question's asking, does that sort of work for understanding homosexual sins? Do we need to understand homosexual behaviour in the same way? You know, perhaps if, if it was um, offensive in the first century but not today, then does it mean that it's not relevant in our culture today? And some would say something like that. Well, firstly, it seems that homosexual sin was just as common in the first century as it is today. And so when the Bible said to the original hearers that it was a sin, then it was addressing behaviour just like ours today. And so that makes it completely relevant to us today. But more than that, the whole area of sexual behaviour and human relationships are outside culture. So even though the ancient marriage ceremonies and traditions were different in the Middle East or in Rome, it doesn't change the way that marriages actually work today. And we'll be hearing a whole lot more about marriages in a little while. Good question. Now you know what Hellenistic means. Question two, is it right to judge other Christians? Well, Jesus gave some warnings about judging other Christians. He said this one, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Okay, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Then he went on to say the bit about taking the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in somebody else's, which is always hilariously funny when you think about what it would look like to have a log in your eye. But So that's verse 1, then you've got verse 2, then verse 3, then verse 4, and then verse 5 says, hypocrite, first, whoop, click twice, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Can you see he's actually saying you do need to deal with someone else's eye stuff. And the key, therefore, is hypocrisy. See, hypocrite, he says. He's saying don't be two-faced. Don't say one thing and do another. That's a bad thing. 
But there is something where this goes up another notch, and that is when it comes to choosing leaders in the church. The Bible tells us that we actually do need to judge others. Have a look at 1, Corinthians, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. So an elder must be a man whose life is above approach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and he must be able to teach. And there's more that goes on in that list. So basically he's saying you need to judge others. You need to judge others in particular as to whether or not it's, they are suitable to lead a church. And the reason we judge is not to be judgmental, but it's actually for us to love others. Which follows on with this question, question three. How should we rebuke and correct other Christians? Well, we need to do it in a truthful and an ordered way, especially when things escalate. And so Matthew chapter 18 is a real go-to passage on this. Let me read to you 15, 16 and 17. It might be familiar to you. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offence. And if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. You see how to do it? It starts out as a private discussion, a private conversation. And the aim is that they will listen to you and they'll say, Aha, I understand. I'm sorry, I need to change. But if they say, no thanks, then if they reject you and the message, it escalates. And the way it escalates is you bring one or two others with you. And if then they say, no thanks, not going to change, you're wrong, not me, then you need to bring it to the church. And if the church says it, and then they still don't listen, it says we need to treat them as if they're not a friend of Jesus. And we do that so that they might then understand afresh what it means to be a follower of Jesus and come back to Jesus. Not so we'll be so narky at them, but because this is life and death stuff. And that's how we are to do it. Question four. Should we tell an unbeliever that God loves them when they've not yet repented and been saved from God's wrath? Well, I happen to know that this question is a follow-up from an answer that I gave last week about whether having a low self-esteem was sinful. Remember that question if you are here last week? I gave the example of my maths teacher at school who, who told the class that because God loves you, you are loved, which is the right way to see yourself, to esteem yourself, to feel about yourself. But the question is this. Was it right to tell a class with many unbelievers that God loves them especially if they haven't yet repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. Well, first let me say I love questions like this because these questions help me clarify something, maybe something that I've said that could have been misunderstood. Or, and some questions even help me see that I've made a mistake and that I need to correct my teaching, which is really, really important. Because, uh, you know, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 that we need to evaluate or weigh prophecies. And I think that's the way that we do it in our own context here. If you hear me answer a question, you go, oh, I didn't really say that. You write it down and give it to me, send me an email. So I didn't really say that. You don't have to use the high pitch, but you say it like that. And then I'll get a chance to go, whoops, and come back and correct it, And uh, which is the truth really matters. 
But the question with all of this then is, can you see that it might be possible that a non-Christian, an unbeliever, might get the impression from my maths teacher that they are, that God loves them as they are and that they're fine to keep living a life that rejects God? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that if a person doesn't believe that Jesus is the loving ruler of the world, and if they don't say sorry for their life of disobedience, then God's anger remains on them. So in a sense, and this is interesting to think through this, but in a sense, to say to a random person, God loves you, is a problem if that person thinks that God accepts them without any repentance at all. Can you see that? Now, if we go around saying to people that they should have a good self-esteem and a positive outlook and all of that, then that's actually not the full message, and it could be a problem. Now, it is a biblical thing to go around and say to people that Jesus loves the world, you know, for God so loved the world, blah, blah, blah. We know that bit. So it is, in a sense, right to say to a stranger that God loves you, but how does he love them? Well, here's this verse from 1 John 4. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The love of Jesus for sinners was shown by his sacrifice on the cross. And the way that random sinners can experience that love is to come to Jesus as Lord and and ask for forgiveness. And then God's anger will be taken from them and put on Jesus instead. And when that's happened to you, then you will truly know the love of God. And then, in the words of my mate Graham Scarrett, you'll have a great Christ esteem, which will then help you with your self-esteem. There you go. I like that. Second last question. We've got a few questions. Why should we do good works if they don't get you into heaven? Well, God sees us by default as spiritually dead, right? We know that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And when you're dead, you don't perform very well. I've not seen dead bodies sort of bounce around and have a good go at trying to please God. So the only way that you can actually get into heaven, so to speak, is for God to raise you from spiritual death by his mercy and love. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And then only in response to his mercy will we want to fill our lives with good works that come from thankfulness to God. So we do good works because we're saved, not in order to be saved. A lot of people get the cart before the horse, which I love that expression. Imagine what that would actually look like. Oh, that'd be pretty scary. That's what some people do when it comes with grace and works. See, we do good works because we've been given the gift of eternal life with Jesus, not so that we'll be able to earn that eternal life, which means that the whole Christian life is a life of freedom from the burden of guilt and sin and performance. And finally... Is it sinful to be anxious? Is it sinful to be anxious? Well, here's a couple of verses for you. Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, That's why I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you've got enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? So whether you want to call that a sin or not, it's pretty clear that God says, trust me. 
Don't worry about it. And then also, in case we've got enough verses, well, never enough. 1 Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. So when you're anxious, go back and read these verses again and take great comfort. Thanks for listening to Jamaloo and the Lane Trip.